Hey there, Super Sober Heroes. It's your host, Sober Steve, the podcast guy. And before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a brief moment to ask for your help to shape the future of gay A. Over the years, this podcast has grown and evolved as I've grown in my sobriety. And recently, I've been investing wild amounts of time, money, and energy to find ways to level up this podcast so it can get heard by the people who need to hear it. I want to take a brief moment to check in with all of you, though, to see what you love about the current show and what could be better as I'm growing and moving forward. In the show notes is a three to five minute survey for you to complete. I kindly ask that you pause this episode and take the time to complete it if you haven't already. You are kind enough to give me 20 to 40 minutes of your time each week when you listen to these episodes, and I want to make sure it's time well spent. So please let your voice be heard. Thanks, SoberPod, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Gay A, a podcast about sobriety for the LGBT plus community and our allies. I'm your host, Steve Bennett-Martin. I am an alcoholic, and I am deserving of the positive changes happening in my life. As of this recording, I am 41 days sober, and today we are welcoming a guest to share his experience, wisdom, and hope with you. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about who you My name is Richard Combs. I'm a recovering meth addict. I have been sober three years as of last month. I used to be an EMT, but now I work in pharma. But yeah, it, it's great to be here. Yeah, and excellent. Congratulations on three years. Thank you. Yes, and tell us a little bit more about what your experience with meth was like then. So as of with a lot of drugs, like my, my first experience with meth was pretty, I mean, it was overall enjoyable experience or I wouldn't have gone back to it. Right. Like it was, it, it was an elevating feeling when somebody offered it to me. I would, at the time I was on medicine for ADHD meds and they were like, Oh, this is just like your ADHD medication, except it's a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up breaking down and, and trying it. And it was like my ADHD medication, except a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that I had an affinity for that. So I stopped taking my medication and just started doing meth full time instead. So that was it was uh, it was a very interesting experience. It wasn't it was didn't start out bad, but it it quickly progressed there. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't take much time at all. So the yeah. downhill side of it. And what was the, the downhill like then? Well, at first, it was I was more of like a, a weekend warrior, just like smoke some on the weekends when I had some time off work and stuff like that. And then once I, I started smoking more and more on the weekdays and everything, and as it became like an everyday part of my life, it it only took eight months for me to lose my five-year relationship and end up living out of my car homeless while still working as an EMT. Wow. Yes. I mean, that is a a quick turnaround. I know when I look back at my experiences with alcohol, it was a much slower burn that occurred over years and years. Yes. Like I was, I was the weekend warrior type that just smoking on that lasted for about a year and a half. Just like I didn't go out looking for it. It was just, if it happened to be around using it and, and I'm going to be honest, I don't know how much I can say on your show, but like it is very much a sexual sexuality heightener. It, 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 it very much made Things of a sexual nature just like explode with pleasure, like so much more than I would get normally. And that that was another leading drive behind behind the use. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I know being in the LGBT community, while I, I mean, I, I remember trying meth in college. It, it was one of those things where I tried it. And that was one of the few things I've ever tried that I didn't get instantly addicted to. Um, 
But I, I know that that definitely, you know, what anyone who is single and on Grinder, you know, it's only a matter of hours, if not minutes, before you get someone asking if you pee in peace. So it, you know, it definitely yeah. is something that is tied to our, you know, a certain section of our community. Absolutely, I, I've talked about this with several on a couple of different podcasts as well. Like, it, it it's a, it's something that affects the gay community so much heavier than the normal populace mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to really get talked about as much. When I started my journey through sobriety, I actually had to uninstall Grinder. I haven't been on Grinder in three years because the city where I live in, it, it's a pretty popular city. Mm-hmm. And if I were to download it, I would be able to find people that have meth. And that's just not a risk that I, I can even take. So I can't even use Grinder anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, going into that, then how do you feel your sexuality has played a role in your addiction? I feel like it played a big role because of how how big of a role that it plays in our community. And how much uh, it's just casually used and like people are like, oh, yeah, I just do this occasionally, whatever. Like it's and so like it, it's it's had an impact with me and the community that I feel like I'm a part of to where I've had to pull away from it. It kind of breaks my heart. But at the same time, I have to do what I need to to stay sober. And so it's it's been really hard with that. all of my friends when I, when I was heavy in my addiction, all of my friends that were using, all of them were gay. I didn't have any uh, straight friends that were using. It encapsulated a gay experience for me to now where when I'm sober and I look back at it, it's hard for me to form relationships, either platonic or romantically with other people within the community, because that's that's what I that's what I remember was the drug use. So, so now in your sobriety, is that something that you feel like you're struggling with more in our community? It, it is. It is, and it, and it sucks. It, it's something that I'm trying to work with in therapy and everything. Um, but it is one thing that's that's kind of taken a hold. And I know it's not it's not even the majority of the community. It's not a large portion, but it's the select select few in the community that like that. It's hard for me to get in there and want to meet a bunch of people because I because the people that I were using was using with like I could never I would have never guessed that they were using until like I was using with them. Mm-hmm. And so now it's hard for me to like want to go into big social groups within the community because I'm worried that somebody's going to bring it up. And that's that's made it that's a unique challenge that that my sobriety program did not prepare me for. Yeah, I, I can imagine that that's um, you know being tempted if you go out. It's it's hard. It's this. I'm sure it's very similar. Like right now. I'm noticing how many gay groups and like social events all circle around alcohol, even where, you know, it's, you know, meet at the bar for this drink or for that happy hour, or, you know, even if it's during the day, it's, you know, brunch with mimosas and things like that. And it's just so centered around our community, you know, focusing on either drugs or alcohol, or a lot of times even a mixture of both that I've certainly had to distance myself, you know, from large groups, you know, I still have luckily like my friends that, stayed with me through my sobriety you know many of them are very happy that i'm sober now because they felt like i'm a better friend better friend now through that um but, yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But the, the, you know, one of my girlfriends, like right afterwards, she invited me to like a, a gay night at a bar, and then she's like, "Ooh, sorry, I forgot." <laughs> and it's just like so natural that you know she, she's like, "I wasn't even thinking about the alcohol part of it. I just was thinking, and I was like, no, being like one week sober, I don't think it's a good week to be like walking in for just because it's the drag race premiere, you know." Right, right. No, absolutely. And it's similar. Alcohol is absolutely everywhere, not even just within the gay community, but within life. Yeah. And I can't I can't imagine the struggles that you've had to go through with that because you like 
it was one thing for me. I could just like cut off certain people and move away from the small town that I was in. And that got rid of 99% of my triggers. Yeah. And it, I know it has to be really hard for you with alcohol. I can't, I can't imagine what that going through that is like. Yeah. And one of the, you had shared with that one of the re- ways you got clean was by going through a substance abuse intensive outpatient program. Can yes. you tell a little more, more about that? Cause I have no experience or even familiarity about what those are like. Absolutely. It's, it's basically an outpatient rehab. So like in a normal rehab program, you go and you're locked within like hospital or a detox center for 28 days was done in a real life applicable way. It was three meetings a week for three hours at a time for three months. And it would be during the days where you don't have your meetings or even like before your meetings, you go out and you live your life. And then you go to these meetings for three hours. And it's basically a, uh, a group therapy program. And there's people there with all different kinds of addictions. I've seen people there from alcohol to crack to meth, heroin, whatever drug you can think of that they're there for that. And then I feel like that helped me a lot more because I thought about going to NA, but nobody's going to hold you. You can hold yourself accountable at NA, but nobody else outside of that is really going to hold you accountable. So this program was like if i showed up high or if i showed up like somebody saw me in the small town and was like hey i saw you you were high a couple of days ago like that i was going to be held accountable mm-hmm. and that's what really helped me through it that and i really liked the group therapy aspect of it because i i got to help people because there were a couple other people in there for meth and everything and i got to tell them some of my experiences and it felt like i really helped them and that that kind of helped me in a way as well but that program absolutely saved my life it was it was absolutely worth it and being being out in the world and being like okay these are the triggers that i ran into today or yesterday or whatever and th- like this is kind of what i'm doing about it but it's not really working and you get input from not just the therapist that's leading the session but also from other people that experience that walk of life and it, it's super helpful i can't recommend it enough yeah, I, I can imagine that being a, a very different experience than going to a full-on inpatient program because, uh, you know, I was blessed with a supportive husband and a supportive kind of work sc- schedule and scenario where I was able to pretty much take a few days off while I detoxed from the alcohol and, you know, my mind cleared and I felt more like myself. But, you know, if I went to an inpatient program, I think I would be like terrified about like, oh, wait, oh I'm learning all these new things, but what happens when I go back out again? And it's, it sounds yeah. like you were kind of having that mix of like you were in and then out and then in and then out through, through that. So like if you were to experience something on one of those off days where you weren't going to your program that you'll be, you'd be able to kind of dive into those issues or that, that struggle the next day in the program. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And that's why I can't recommend it up because it, it's one thing to be like when you're sitting in a room that it's in a specific facility, you're like, okay, these are the things I can do when I get back out to real life. But it's very different when it's like, oh, no, this is real life happening right now and I need help with it. Mm-hmm. And and that's where the say up came in with the ladder. And it, it was very, very helpful. I don't know if I would have been able to do the twi- I don't know if I would have been able to maintain my sobriety with just the 28 day inpatient. And the large portion of where the time is because it's also three months. So it doesn't help you over just a short period. It's a three month program. Yeah. No, that, that, that sounds great. And I know that you, in addition to that, you also made a change in your career as well during your sobriety. What was well, it was shortly after my sobriety. It was after I had been sober for about a year and a half is okay. when I decided to make the change. With an EMT, you work very long hours. And my supervisor at first, for like the first year, he was like, hey, I'm not going to put you on any 24-hour shifts. I want you to get like, I want you to become back to yourself before mm-hmm. 
that. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's, and he worked with me. It was great. And then after about that year, he was like, all right, like, do you think you're ready to pick up 24 hour shifts? And I was like, yeah, I think I, I think that's something I can manage. And it absolutely was something that I could not. And so like, I found myself starting to have cravings, just trying to keep up with my work schedule. So I went back and I told him and I was like, Hey, this isn't really working. And he was like, well, you know, we've already put you back on like the 24. It's going to be hard to take back off. Like a month should have been long enough. Like it was almost like a complete, complete flip. He thought I was good. And then that I would have no struggles moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this just isn't really working for me. And and I was talking with some friends because contrary to popular belief, EMS does not get paid a lot of money. People mm-hmm. think they do, but they don't. And I'm living in a bigger city now. And I just couldn't, I was barely being able to afford to live. And so I was talking with some of my friends who worked in pharma and they were like, you know, this, this pays a lot better. You'll go back to 12 hour shifts. Like you, like there's no 24 is ever, like that's not ever going to be a risk. Yeah. And as long as you're fine working 12 hour shifts, like this pay is a lot better than what you were getting paid with EMS. And so that's actually where my, uh, where my career switch came from. It was partially because of the finances and it was partially because the long hours and the the very triggering things that you can see in EMS were making me want to slip up and I I would have done anything to not slip up. So I switched careers. Yeah. And I mean, that that's certainly inspiring. I know that, you know, I certainly am nowhere near as triggered, you know, with like as an EMT might be around what they're doing, but I know right, right now a lot of my drinking was revolving around my self-worth and not feeling like I'm good enough. And I'm in a sales role now where no matter how good my numbers get, you know, they're never good enough. They always want more. And so, oh, you know, they can always do better sales numbers. Exactly. So having to wrap my mind around that, you know, it, it's, it's nice to know that like, you know, it, after, you know, a certain amount of time, if it's not working, you can make a positive change for the better. And that can possibly involve a change of career. Absolutely. In fact, when I had, when I left my EMS job, I actually, I quit with no notice and I had no backup plan. It wasn't until the month after that, that my friends were like, Hey, here's this job for you. Cause before that I was like, you know, I'll find something else. I don't need the stress, it's causing me so much stress that I want to use again. And that's not something I'm going to let. It was not just the substance abuse, but it was also triggering some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. And I just showed up for work and I was like, hey, I'll finish out this last shift and then I'm going home and you guys won't see me again. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds like that led to, you know, a positive change in your life. And what are some of the other positive changes in your life now that you're living sober? The biggest ones are that I have been able to regain relationships with my friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, before this, like my, my relationship was my mom was a strain, but she was also a travel nurse. She wasn't around a whole lot. So like she didn't really know what to the extent of what was going on. But my friends had all but except for the ones that were using had all but stopped hanging out with me. Would understandably why. And I, I wasn't upset that they stopped. That would that was the correct decision that they made on their choice. I wasn't really a great person when I was using. But so being able to repair the relationship with them and with my mom has been well worth it just in and of itself. It's it's been really nice being able to like see them and spend time with them. And I'm closer with them now than I have than I was before I started using. So it that's been the best thing that's come out of it. Yeah, that that certainly sounds great. That uh, financial, like I, I saved so much money. Yeah, I, I can, I can imagine. I, I know that even right now, just with, with alcohol. And then I also, you know, was, I've used marijuana when I was drinking a lot. And so with those two extra expenses into my bank account, you know, I'm already, you know, able to treat myself to an extra video game or a toy or things here and there. Oh, exactly. I'm able to now I can 
between this job and not spending as much as I was spending on meth, I'm able to just be like, oh, I kind of want this. And I'm able to just buy it. I don't have to even look at my bank account. I'm just able to buy things. And like, that's an incredible feeling. Yeah. And what are some tips that you use to help stay sober? Um, so when I first started getting sober, what I tried and did not work for me was when I was having cravings, I would just cut myself off. I would cut my phone off and I would isolate. But that just brought things to a boil for when I finally did cut my phone back on. It was like, no, no, I, I need to talk to people. Yeah. So mine has just been like, if I'm having cravings, the big biggest two things I do is the first one I do is I'll, I'll call up a friend and be like, hey, this is what's happening. Are you free to hang out? And like try is if I can get myself around people, mm-hmm. then I know that especially that have never used drugs in the life, I know I'm not going to use as long if I surround myself with people that aren't using, I'm not going to use. Yeah. So that's the biggest one I use. The secondary one is if I don't have anybody around me that's free to hang out is there are a couple of different state parks that are near me that have hiking trails and I go out for walks on the hiking trails. Um, because my the biggest time I get triggered is like right after I wake up or or when I'm at work. Mm-hmm. But when I'm at work, I don't have to worry about it because I'm at work. I, I can't leave work. Yeah. That, that's not that's not a big one. It's right when I wake up. So usually, right, and it only happened. I only get triggered real bad like that like once a month at this point. So it's calmed way down from what it was. But those are the two biggest things I use to to help maintain to help keep control over the triggers. Yeah, thank you for that. And I know that us addicts and you know people in recovery really love our traditions and our sayings. You know, do, yes. do, do you have any favorite mantras or inspirational quotes that you love or live? One that I heard when I first started getting sober, and this is actually where my trick about calling people and trying to hang out with people when I'm triggered. The one that I follow the most is that trauma is the cause of drug addiction, but loneliness is the cause of relapse. I like that. And, and so like, that's why like somebody told that to me and it, it held so strong in me that like when I, when I start to get triggered, it's, it's immediately trying to find somebody. So I'm not lonely. Yeah. And it's, I, it's great having the, the connection with people. I, I know that, you know, when I used to drink because I felt lonely and I, I now realize that I was lonely because I drank. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In my, my meth addiction, it, it's a social drug, but the people you're being social with aren't necessarily people you want to be social with. It's mm-hmm. just people that will be social with you. And there, those are two very different things. But yeah, so lonely, that, that's a hill that I, I will easily die on is that loneliness causes relapse. And so the biggest thing that, in my opinion, the biggest thing you can do to help yourself when you're feeling triggered is to find somebody just to be present with you, whether, whether it be physically or emotionally. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you listeners for listening. Uh, If you need help immediately, please call SAMHSA's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. If you're interested in sharing your story, like Richard here, getting involved with the show or just saying hi, you can always email me at gayapodcast at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget to follow us wherever you're listening so you can get new episodes when they come out weekly or twice a week, I think, at least for the first little bit. (laughs) But thank you again, Richard, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes. And until next time, stay sober, friends.